Nobody cares about weight loss. Nobody gives a gives a patootie about weight loss. All they care about is what they think weight loss will buy. Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders to those of us who have been around for a while. I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. The skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. Welcome back to The Seasoned RD, or if this is your first time, welcome to The Seasoned RD Podcast. This is one of those episodes I will be listening to time and time again, and I'll be referring so many people to. Today's guest is Margaret, Dr. Margaret Berman, and Dr. Berman shares so many nuggets with us that I almost felt like I was in my own therapy session. I did not know about Margaret until we had Fiona Sutherland on the podcast, and ironically, Abby had already selected a book written by Dr. Berman from a list that I provided to her earlier this year. So it was meant to be. If you're getting ready for a board exam or a licensure exam or registration exam, I love her advice and she shares stories about her special day of her licensure. A little bonus is how to learn to enjoy breakfast if you've never been a breakfast person. We have some great discussions on how to help folks who come with us wanting to lose weight and not wanting to accept themselves as they are. And Margaret shares that no matter what we look like, we will have problems looking in the mirror because we are not privileged to be in a society that accepts all bodies. Listen in to hear how she compares winning $10 million in the lottery to reaching that goal weight. Sprinkled throughout the discussion is gender identity, racism, the work that we all as clinicians need to do, especially white clinicians, and understanding how we show up in the room and how we show up in our lives. What this podcast is and is not, in this podcast, we bring in medical nutrition and therapy professionals who share their passions to pique your interest in available modalities for the field of eating disorders. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional training and supervision required to specialize in the treatment of eating disorders, nor is it a substitute for medical, nutritional, or psychological advice from a professional or specialist. Enjoy this episode with Dr. Margaret Berman. Welcome to you, Margaret Berman, to the Seasoned RD podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Good morning. We cannot wait to learn from you and your expertise, but we will just ease you on into things with some icebreakers. So my first one for you, mountains or beach? Oh, really good question. Can I have both? Uh, This is the kind of person that I am. I want both. We uh, spend our summers in New Hampshire and we actually live on a lake. So we have a beach with a mountain behind 
and it's pretty nice. <laughs> oh, that sounds beautiful. It is. <laughs> yeah, probably have to get out of that Minnesota weather for a little bit, right? <laughs> well, you figure they're both cold places, but they, and they also both have beautiful summers, so it's a hard choice. But I love having that mix. Our place in New Hampshire is very rural in Minneapolis and St. Paul. We live right in the city, so it's nice to get that mix of both a really rural, peaceful place and a place with a lot of vibrancy and art and all, all of that. Oh, great. Okay. So my second one for you then is breakfast or dinner? Oh, I used to, I, if you'd asked me 20 years ago, I would have said dinner for sure. I was one of those people who skipped breakfast. I was not interested in anything in the morning. My stomach was all tied up in knots in the morning to face the day. Um, but in the last few years, when we moved to St. Paul, we got this uh, apartment that has this beautiful, bright yellow breakfast room and with a beautiful Eastern sunlight. And so my husband and I have made this ritual of just sitting and having this, this lovely leisurely, we get up early to do it, peaceful breakfast every morning and I treasure it. So I guess breakfast. That sounds so lovely. What a good way to start the day. It really is a good way to start the day. I'm not a morning person and it's a challenge to get out of bed, <laughs> but just having that sun streaming in and just, an, you know, an egg and toast with a half an avocado and a little salad. Oh my gosh, there's uh, nothing better. Yeah. That, you know, the two questions that Abby asked you, and I'm going to ask you the last one, but I already connected with you. My parents were from New Hampshire, well, Massachusetts, but New Hampshire border. Right. And I love beach. I love the mountains. So we're going to make a trip out there for my adult kids and their significant others to see where the stomping grounds were back there. That's such a beautiful part of the country. And then yellow walls like that's my mom's favorite color. It was. So fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's not a color I would think to paint a wall. And it was the color when we purchased this apartment that it was, but just the sun bouncing off of it is so perfect. It's just beautiful. It's a great setting. So you are PhD, right? Okay. Right. Well, let me, I'm sorry. Let me back up a little bit. Audiobook or paper book? Oh, paper books. I'm still a paper book tactile. I like, I even sort of enjoy that. I have a little bit of an artistic side for hobbies and I even enjoy sort of making books. So yeah, I'd much rather, although audiobooks have their place. They're a wonderful for long road trips, but yeah, if I'm choosing between them, I'm going to want that old fashioned smell of the library kind of every time. I love the smell. <laughs> I often say I'd like to work in a library or, or a card shop just for the smell of the paper when you walk in. Right. <laughs> So as a PhD psychologist, you had to take some board exams, I would assume, or some. Yeah, I'm not board certified. We do have a licensure exam in psychology, which is always so right now in my life, one of my big roles occupationally is I train baby psychologists Uh um, and I'm a program director of a PsyD clinical psychology training program. And so students, that licensure exam, it's the first big test. It usually comes a couple of years after they finish their degrees. And I don't know what it is about the EPPP, but for psychologists, no matter what your score was, no matter whether you got 90th percentile or whether you barely passed, everyone walks out of that test going, oh, for sure I failed. For sure I failed. Okay. So I tell people that now that that it's not indicative. If you walk out feeling you might have failed, well, maybe you did because people do. But 
everybody feels that way, even people who get really, really great scores. What does EPPP stand for? You know, I should know, but I don't. <laughs> Never mind. Don't worry about <laughs> because it. Because we all call it that, EPPP. Uh, but it is the National Licensure Exam for Psychologists. You can't okay. be board certified in psychology, and it's a whole other additional process, and you choose a particular, you know, area of psychology, counseling psychology, or neuropsychology, and so on. Uh, So far in my life, I have really walked a generalist path. So I haven't pursued board certification, but so much admiration for the psychologists that do, because it is a very rigorous process. Okay. So your licensure exam, can you bring us back to that day? What do you remember from it? Well, the experience I just said everyone has, I definitely had myself, Um, you know, it's on the computer and I, I was fearful about that. I mean, that generation that when I went into grad school, I still had the option to take a paper exam. And so I did. And, uh, and so this was the first time I had to do a, a computerized exam and I, I prepared as well as I thought I could. And some woman I remember had seen my asking for test prep materials on some listserv and just randomly sent them to me. And they're worth thousands of dollars. So it was a tremendous gift. And of course, I paid it forward to someone else. But oh, that test day. And I walked out positive. I failed the test. And you don't hear for months. Months. (laughs) But I was absolutely positive. And I passed with flying colors. It wasn't even close. But I walked out just certain. Uh, There's a lot of questions that just I have no idea what the answer is. <laughs> wow. Okay. This is helpful because our listeners are people in uh, still in their programming and others yeah. who have been around for a while. So thank you for sharing that, um, <laughs> it, that anxiety piece that, oh, yes. so, how'd you get into the field of psychology and then into, we're, we're going to talk a lot about your book, A Clinician's Guide to Acceptance-Based Approaches mm-hmm. for Weight Concerns. Mm-hmm. And so how did you get into that particular niche? Yeah. So uh, psychology was sort of a little bit of a circuitous path for me, how I ended up a psychologist. I I didn't take even one course in psychology in my undergraduate career. I didn't even take Psych 101. Um, I was an English major. I was a studio art minor. I still have artistic practice as a really big part of my life. And when I graduated from uh, undergrad, I had been a really high achiever in high school and in college. And I was really lost in that period of my life. I did all the things you do in your 20s. You know, I did a little bit of waitressing and a little bit of teaching and, you know, tried all different jobs and nothing really settled or felt right. And of course, I think I secretly hoped I would become a famous novelist kind of by magic without actually writing anything, you know, but I just flailed around. And at a certain point in my sort of mid to late 20s, my husband and I got together fairly young and he said to me, you just have to pick a direction. It doesn't have to be the right direction, but you have to pick a direction and go pick something, you know, you can do. And I said to myself, well, I think I, I think I know how to become a psychologist. I maybe don't know how to become a, a New York Times bestselling novelist, but I think I can become a psychologist. And so that started my path. And I had to do, I knew that I needed to be in a PhD program because I didn't have the funds and I didn't feel comfortable going into debt. So I knew I had to prepare myself and I, I got a lot of research experience and yeah, I took a bunch of classes and finally did my degree. A fun fact, even though I am program director of a clinical psychology training, Training program. I'm not a clinical psychologist. I actually have a double PhD in counseling and social psychology. 
And in graduate school, I've always had an interest in eating disorders. I also did some work related to romantic relationships and especially kind of cheating and and negative behaviors in romantic relationships. And as far as how I ended up in the body acceptance space or in working around eating disorders and body image, it was something I was always interested in. And I think for me, the interest really was political and came out of my feminism. I know for a lot of my colleagues, their own interest is very personal and came out of recovery experiences and things like that. But for me, I was most interested in eating disorders because I didn't experience them and didn't identify them, identify with them. I identify as genderqueer. I did even when I was younger. I was a pretty butch kid. Um, And so I had this sort of more masculine way of thinking about and, and interrelating with body image. And I had all these female friends who really struggled with it. And even when I was a kid, I saw it as a scam, you know, this feeling of like, this is how they control you. They get you busy on weight loss, which is something that you will never succeed at and takes up a lot of space in your head. And while you're busy worrying about that, you can't become president or, you know, become famous as a writer or whatever your big dream is. It's just BS, isn't it? Isn't that such BS? And so I got interested in it intellectually from that perspective. How do I take Because my early experiences, both with my acquaintances and friends and my early eating disorder patients are, these are the most high achieving, smart, skillful people in the world, right? Both men and women with eating disorders, they're often somewhat perfectionistic, high achieving, they're attainers. It's like, wow, if if we got you guys together and you weren't focused on weight, think what you could achieve. (laughs) And so that was where my interest came. And in the early 90s, someone gave me a copy of a book called Women on Large, which is by Lori Toby Addison and Debbie Notkin, who I sort of think of as forgotten foremothers of the Hayes movement. You don't hear their names. They're out in Southern California. They're still writing and doing work. But the book was Fat Women in nude photo- photos. So Lori Toby Addison's a photographer. So she had all of these photos of fat women and she had sort of put them together. It was this very rich multicultural tapestry. So it was women of all races and all backgrounds and all sexual orientations and some women who were very tattooed and some women who were not. And she depicted them in settings they chose. So like their bedrooms, there was one woman who was a musician who was photographed nude with her guitar. There were women on the beach, just the, and and also they had the women's writings alongside. And it was such a powerful book for me. And it was that awareness that the problem with body image is something we're being programmed and fed. And there are so many ways that women and femme presenting people and queer people can control our own images and represent ourselves and choose what kind of standard we're going to have for how we look or whether that even matters. So it was very life-changing book for me. And I think really started me on the path of fat acceptance specifically. And I started teaching that I was teaching psychology of women and psychology of gender. And I started, uh, teaching that in my classes to students. And boy, at that time, this was 
kind of 2003, four or five, no one was talking about this yet. No. Um, there were very few folks, you know, Linda Bacon had, to, had I think, just put out Health at Every Size. And, you know, Deb Burgard out in California was ta- had body positive and was talking about it, but very few other people. And the way that my fat female students would light up when someone was finally talking about the science of weight loss and sort of what was really going on. It was, it was a good time to be part of this movement. <laughs> I am so appreciative. Here is something, Abby, that I hadn't heard is this Women on Large book. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the podcast, too, is getting people connected with what your secret recipe is, Margaret. <laughs> and, right. and so in the show notes, we're going to put that book as, a, as an idea. Back in the early 90s, I remember working with a client with diabetes and hearing of a physician in California, who was endocrinologist, who was doing weight, he he was not weighing his d- clients with diabetes, his patients. Wow. Cool. And, I mean, no, this is like in the early nineties, and was I, that was very my, radical then. Very yeah. radical then, and uh-huh. I loved it. And so, ever since then, I think my path has been like there's got to be more to mm-hmm. helping treat folks with uh, work with someone with diabetes who has been banged over the head with weight loss as a goal. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your own book because you've taken, mm-hmm. you know, your resources all along the way. I'm also really, really, really grateful that you talked about your gender identity. So anyways, tell me about your book. Yeah. So, uh, so there's two books, actually, there's a the clinician's guide, and then there's also a self help manual. And the way they came about, they were sort of culmination of, I don't know, five or 10 years worth of work. So before I was here in Minneapolis, I spent about a decade and actually I still have a faculty appointment at Dartmouth in the medical school there, the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth. Sometimes I joke that I don't work for the Mickey Mouse School of Medicine. I work for the Dr. Seuss School of Medicine because Geisel is indeed Theodore Geisel. It's named after Dr. Seuss. He's a big contributor. He went to Dartmouth and is a big contributor to the medical school there. But I was at Dartmouth for about 10 years. And I did a number of different things there. I was hired there to work in and and co-direct a mood disorder service. So I wasn't sort of hired as an eating disorder person or someone to do that work at all. And they were really interested in what I might have to contribute to depression and mood disorders. But also there weren't a lot of people there when I was hired who had a lot of expertise in eating disorders. So sort of by default, I was the clinician who did that work. And I got interested in that interface between body image and mood that I saw a lot of patients, larger body patients who had met criteria for major depressive disorder. We hear in the literature about metabolic mood syndrome, this idea that metabolic dysfunction and and maybe also obesity in quotes go with depression. And what struck me about that was that a lot of my fat, larger body clients with depression talked a lot about body image as kind of the source of the problem and stigma and abuse and discrimination based on their weight as being one of the things that they were depressed about or that they were struggling with in terms of depression. And so I had wanted for a long time to do some work based on self-acceptance. I was trained in my internship in acceptance and commitment therapy. 
And I had done some research already looking at acceptance and commitment therapy as a treatment for chronic unremitting anorexia. So folks at the other end of the of the weight spectrum and had really felt like that had a lot of promise with folks with anorexia. And so I, I, and I was developing some expertise as an ACT clinician and training people around the country in ACT. And I really was struck by the link between ACT which focuses on letting go of kind of an unproductive struggle with your moods and your emotions and your feelings about yourself and your thoughts and just sort of not struggling with them anymore, just allowing them to be and living a good life, even with these difficult feelings that we all experience. And the link between that and my fat acceptance work, where you're giving up this sort of unhelpful struggle with your body and unhelpful struggle with weight loss, and instead choosing to live a good life and a rich life and the healthiest possible life in the body that you have. And those things seem like they went together so well that I almost was a little surprised that nobody had actually tried to integrate them and investigated that at that time. And so that's where I started. I I got a little career development grant that was internal to my department to pilot and develop an intervention that would be aimed at fat women with depression. That was our kind of initial focus. And that would hopefully both enhance physical and mental health without any focus on weight loss or interest in weight loss. And so we started to develop this intervention had some mentorship to do that. And we did a little pilot trial on that first initial small bit of funding that suggested that this was a helpful approach and that people liked it. And our participants said, oh, we really like this approach, but we want a self-help workbook or something we can take home for homework. So we wrote a, a workbook and and yeah, and then we got a little bit more funding to do a, again a pilot trial, but a randomized control trial where we would compare it against Weight Watchers. So a straight, because often fat women with, with depression are told or believe that if you just lost weight, everything would be better mentally and physically. And so they get told to, to take weight loss and go to a weight loss intervention. And Weight Watchers was similar to accept yourself in some kind of surface ways. They're both intended to be supportive. They're both group-based interventions where people offer help to one another. They're both facilitated. The aim is wellness, I guess, in both in both areas, but they were very different. One is a weight loss intervention and one is absolutely not. So we did a little head-to-head comparison. And uh, yeah, and that actually took a long time to get published, uh, partly because I've bounced around the country and partly because it, it can be challenging to publish Hayes-related work. So that one, the official publication just came out this year, which is great. Yeah, and and now because we've been this program here at Augsburg that I'm running is new. It's only been here for about three years. And we've had a lot of my attention has been devoted to setting it up and making sure it survives. But now that we are set here and settled, my hope is that in the next few years, I'll be able to launch a larger clinical trial and really take a look at accept yourself as an intervention from that perspective. But in the meantime, the books are out. Clinicians are using it, implementing it. There's some folks in Chicago and folks in California that have been implementing it, looking at outcomes. And also the world has evolved a little bit. When I started this work, it was really novel and no one was doing anything like this. And now the culture has come along with me and I feel so excited about that. And we've also done a much better job about getting intersectional and talking about the roots in white supremacy of fat hatred and talking about how race, 
and ageism and ableism intersect with fat hatred to oppress people of all genders. And I feel like the book, if I could do it again, I would I would hit that much more, much more deeply, much more richly in the book than I did. So that's an area that I'm hopeful that we can kind of change in future iterations. This episode is brought to you by Beth Harrell Supervision. I have two group sessions a year, one from January to June, the second session from July to December. Those are full right now, but individual supervision can happen at any time, whether you are a medical provider, or therapist, or dietitian. Then coming into the group after that is so powerful. If you're seeking certification as a an eating disorder specialist, I can definitely help you through the details of all of the requirements. Those who sign up for my supervision freebies are among the first to know when my groups will open up for the January through June cohort. The link is in the show notes. The freebies are monthly live short courses with different experts on a variety of topics that come up in supervision, like growth charts, RFID, emotional care of the clinician, and more. I hope to see you there. I'll tell you what, your book is loaded with stuff. So if you're thinking about what you need to add to it, 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 you, for anyone listening, just looking through the different areas and it's, it is loaded with stuff and there's always going to be something just like Lindo wanting to the health at every size name or even intuitive eating name of other, there's things that we would want to change later because people put it into a box or a category. So I'm going to play devil's advocate of, but Margaret, I'm, I don't like the word acceptance based. I don't want to accept myself. Like I need to lose weight. What do I, what do I do? I love that. I mean, there's kind of two different pieces of it. Sometimes I'll get clients who say, I can't possibly love my body, right? We have this message out in the culture of body positivity, which I think is a lot of problems associated with it. And this idea that if you were really well and healthy, you would love your body. And I always tell clients, your feelings about your body have actually nothing to do with you. You did not creatively invent them. You didn't stand in front of the mirror as a as a newborn baby and offer a judgment of whatever you looked like as a newborn baby. You were taught to judge bodies and what was a good looking body and a not so good looking body and what was an acceptable body and a not acceptable body. And none of that was your idea. In fact, clients almost always will tell me, especially clients who have kids, will say, oh my gosh, how do I not pass this on to the next generation? So they recognize that these ideas that are sitting in their head are not ideas they want to sell or give to others. They don't believe in them. It's not like, the way I believe that peace and love are important or the way I might believe something politically or believe something religiously. I don't believe any of this stuff that shows up in my head about my body, right? As a human being living living in this culture. I don't believe it. I don't buy it. I wouldn't sell it to anyone else. And yet here it is. It was given to me against my will and without my choice. And so the thoughts that show up in your head when you look in the mirror and news alert, this is true for me. This is true, I think, for literally everyone in this culture at this point. We know that weight loss efforts, for example, are normative for both men and women at this point. So everyone is doing this or thinking this. 
you look in the mirror and you have negative thoughts at some point, right? Like absolutely, no matter what you look like across the weight spectrum, uh, across the age spectrum, across the level of physical ability spectrum, everyone, as far as I can tell, looks in the mirror and has something nasty to say and not something that they chose or that they came up with, but literally something that you've been programmed with. So the idea that you're going to love your body or that you're going to interrelate with your mind that's a struggle you could go down all by yourself. You're not going to get rid of those thoughts. You didn't choose them in a very important way. They're not yours. And you don't actually have to do anything with them other than just observe that they're there. And, you know, hi, thanks, thought. There it is. You know, I don't need to fix that or cure it or change it. I don't need to make that different to live a good life. And I certainly don't need to feel bad that I'm having that thought. I didn't choose it. It's just in there, you know, the same way I have brown eyes, you know, or, or, or that my hair is going gray. These aren't things I chose. They're just things that I was given. So there's that piece. The other piece that you'd asked about sort of the person who says, so, so sometimes I get folks, I can't love my body. And I say, that's great. You don't have to, I don't know how anyway, you know, the whole, as much as the whole culture could benefit from that shift, I don't know how to make myself consistently every single day, every single part of me love with my whole heart, my body. That is not something that happens inside my mind. Um, I'm not privileged to live in a culture where that's a gift I was given. I wish I were, and I wish you were, but neither of us are. But I do sometimes get clients who say just what you said, Beth, that I'm I'm not interested in acceptance. And honestly, those are my favorite clients to work with. And the clients that I think I speak to, there are certainly clients, especially now that there is a strain out in the culture that says body acceptance is a worthwhile thing and that all bodies are good bodies. Uh, and I'm now starting to get clients that come and use phrases like diet culture and things like that to me, which is marvelous. But when I started this work, the patients who came to me were coming explicitly for weight loss. That's what they were coming for. They had heard that I was an eating and eating disorder expert. They were struggling with their body image and they came to me and just said, Dr. Berman, I hear you're an expert in weight management. And actually, I, I even have talked and said that these are acceptance-based approaches to weight management, by which I mean, uh, not that your body will change if your thinking gets right, because your body is not controlled by your thoughts, but that choosing to accept your weight as it is and as it fluctuates up and, and down is a perfectly acceptable way to manage your weight and a healthy way to manage your weight. And so people came to me sort of expecting, can you make me thinner? And so I enjoy speaking with those clients and going through a process with those clients to explore whether a self-acceptance-based approach might be new for them, might be helpful for them, might offer something that weight control approaches haven't. And by the time, nobody ever tries me as their first weight loss effort, right? By the time someone gets to me, they might have five years, 10 years, 20, 30, 40 years of experience with weight loss, right? Of experience with making the effort to lose weight. And so I have the advantage of being able to come in with something very different and new. And part of our informed consent process is exploring how weight loss has worked in the client's life. What has it done for you? What's been your relationship with it over time? What's been your relationship with your body over time while you've been engaged in this weight loss strategy? And is that working? Is that is that what you're wanting? And if it isn't, 
why don't we try something different? So that's kind of where I start. And I could talk more about that if you'd like, but but definitely the clients I'm I'm often most excited to work with come in expecting that at the end of our work together, they're going to be 20 pounds lighter or whatever. And it's a shift that, that we go through together, exploring uh, how could we, instead of taking that as the goal, focus on living a really good life in the body that you have right this minute. And what do you say, because I'm sure that you've gotten this before, to a client who comes in and says, well, no, I I do need to lose weight. My doctor said I have to. He just had to increase my metformin, talking about putting me on insulin. And my doctor says the way that I can avoid that is by losing weight. How do you respond to that? Yeah. And such a difficult thing. And you're sort of raising two issues, right? There's both how you talk to the client and then there's how you talk to our peer professionals, right? That other doctors, other dietitians, other folks who are working with our patients who may be encouraging weight loss and may be encouraging weight loss from a, a very caring place in the sense that they're worried about weight associated health concerns that our clients might have diabetes or heart disease or, you know, you name it. And how do you talk? to both of those sets of people. And one thing I always try to do is stay very, very grounded in the science, right? And very, very grounded in the research. That's where, how I was trained as a psychologist, that's what's important to me. Part of my life is that I teach how to do statistics and research methods. So the research is really, really important to me. And so there's a couple of things I can say about the research. One thing that I think it's important to acknowledge is that there are a variety of physical health concerns that are correlated with increased weight, right? Like you cannot say that diabetes, that that weight is not a risk factor for diabetes or that weight is not a risk factor for heart disease because it is. And the literature is very clear that it is. And I don't think it's helpful for us to argue that point. I think it's perfectly fine to concede that point. And I often sometimes tell my clients that, I promise you that if a time comes when there is a weight loss strategy out there in the world that doesn't have significant risks of long-term weight gain, that doesn't have significant other physical risks and mental health risks to you, that's safe and effective and causes weight loss over the long term, I'm not going to hide it from you. I promise I will let you know when that's available. But we've been working really hard at this to the tune of millions and billions of dollars over time, and we're not there yet with the science. We as clinicians have to acknowledge our limitations. We do not have a non-surgical, behavioral, or medical intervention to offer clients that's empirically supported for long-term weight loss. And in fact, for all of our interventions, with the exception of surgery, and I can talk about surgery in a minute, with the exception of surgery... All of them carry a substantial risk of long-term weight gain for our clients. And I don't know anything else about the client that's coming to me for weight loss, but that client is not signing up for long-term weight gain. (laughs) That's not what they want. That's not what their physician wants. That's not what they want. So it doesn't make sense for me. One of the reasons that I don't do behavioral weight loss work, I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is that it doesn't work. And that, in fact, it causes weight gain over the long term. So it doesn't make sense, even if you have diabetes or you have heart disease, and even if your doctor would like to wave his or her or their magic wand and make you lose 10, 20, 50, 100 pounds, and even if you would like that too, 
It does, and even if it's true, and, and of course this is problematic in the research, we can talk about why, but even if it would be true that if we waved our magic wand and made you 100 pounds lighter, you would now be low risk for all those diseases and you would be healthy and all their problems would go away and you wouldn't have to take metformin. Even if all of that were true, the reality is that right now in 2022, I do not have an intervention that I can offer you that is safe and effective and does that. And I promise to let you know when that changes. But for right now, I, if I decide to pursue a weight loss strategy with you as a client, I am doing something that puts you at greater risk of exactly the same weight-associated diseases that you came in for help with. So I'm not going to do that. I don't consider that ethical. I'm putting you at greater risk. We're not going to do that, you know? And, and so that's kind of the conversation I start to have, that we could perhaps agree that these diseases are associated with weight. I probably can't agree. It's out in front of the research that if this person could lose weight, they would definitely get better. But if we imagine that that's true, we still don't know how to do it. We still don't know how to make it happen. And so what I tell clients is, Actually, nobody wants weight loss. You're not going to believe me, but nobody wants weight loss. Mm. And also, nobody wants to win the lottery either. And I can prove it. And here's how. So let's just say, Abby, that I have good news for you. This is the best podcast you've ever done. And the reason it's the best podcast is that I have, I've just pulled your name from a hat and you're going to win $10 million. How are you feeling? I'm feeling pretty excited. I could use that. Ten That's pretty good, right? Like, you know, Beth may need to get a new co-host. You may be doing something different with your life from here on out. Okay, but here's the catch, Abby. This is the catch. The catch is I have $10 million for you right here, just around the corner of my office outside, outside where the camera is. But it's in a Lucite box and it's stacked, $100 bill stacked up on top of each other in this Lucite box. I don't know how tall it would be. Maybe it's 10 feet tall, but you can't get the money out. If you try to take the money out, the money will all be destroyed and you won't have anything. So you've still got $10 million, but it's in this loose box. How are you feeling? Mm, very, very disappointed. Yeah, kind of mad. Thanks a lot, Dr. Berman. You know, like, no thanks. <laughs> and weight loss is sort of the same. Sometimes I'll say to clients, I'll give you two doors. Behind door number one, you have hit the goal weight that you're having in your head and that you're dreaming of in your wildest fantasies, whatever that is, right? You're 100 pounds or you're 120 pounds or whatever your fantasy is, but that's it. If you step on the scale, the number says 120. I've reduced your gravitational mass in relationship to the earth, but I haven't changed how you look. I haven't changed how the world perceives you or treats you. I haven't changed your health status or your future health status. I haven't changed how sexy you are. I haven't changed how able you are to do things you enjoy. I haven't changed anything else except the number on the scale. And behind the other door, I don't change your number on the scale. Your body stays exactly the same as, and your and your gravitational mass and relationship to the earth stays exactly the same. Nothing's changed, but you get all of the things that you're imagining weight loss will buy you behind door number two. So you get the great job and you have the amazing partner who loves you and thinks you're sexy and you think you're sexy and you're wearing the cute clothes and your health is good. You go to the doctor and your blood works excellent and your doctor's excited about that and nobody treats treats you badly based on the body shape and size that you have, which would you choose? Mm. It's not the weight loss people want any more than it's the money. You don't want the money when you win the lottery. You it, Having a stack of, of $100 bills in a box is not what you want. You want what you think the money will buy. 
And it's the same with weight loss. Nobody cares about weight loss. Nobody gives a gives a patootie about weight loss. All they care about is what they think weight loss will buy. And so I tell my patients, I have no idea how to make people lose weight. The research literature has no idea how to make people lose weight. I mentioned that bariatric surgery has better long-term outcomes for weight loss, but that's only because you lose a larger amount of weight with bariatric surgery. Initially, the pattern of results where you lose weight and then gain them back over time is the same for bariatric surgery as it is for all other weight loss strategies. And bariatric surgery comes with very substantial physical and mental health risks. And so and the rate of weight regain and what they call failure is very, very high. And even given the increased weight, initial weight loss, it's still uh, dramatically less than clients expect following a weight loss effort. So none of these weight loss strategies are going to get you what you want. They're None of them are going to make you feel better about yourself. And none of them are going to, over the long term, they're not going to provide these benefits. And I don't know how to make weight loss happen. I promise to alert you and alert the media if ever, ever that changes in the science. But I don't know how to do that. I do know how to get all the other things that are important to you. That's I do what know I was going to ask you. Get healthy. Yeah. yeah. I know. What can you give me if I'm not going to lose weight? Exactly. I can't help you with the strategy that you're employing, but I can help you with the goal. And it turns out, that if we leave aside this strategy that's counterproductive and causes weight loss and comes with all these, I mean, causes weight gain over the long term and comes with all of these ethical risks and physical risks and emotional risks to the client, if we just set that all aside and instead we try to go directly where you want to go, you know, vibrant physical health. I want uh, to feel sexy and wear cute clothes. I want a lover who loves me and treats me well and doesn't abuse me based on my weight. I want to interact in the world in a way that suggests that I deserve to be here in this body. And I want to go rock climbing and kayaking. And I want to go to Aruba and I want to go on a plane. And I want to do all these things. I can help you with all of that. I can work on all of that directly and we don't have to do anything with your body to get you there. And so that's the work. That's what we're going to be doing in treatment. Yeah. And I'm like you, when I have a client and I'm, um, they're just, just starting with me or interested in working with me. And I ask them as an intuitive eating counselor to put weight loss on the back burner. First mm-hmm. of all, it gets it interferes with your ability to listen to your body because that trust is just not there. It's like, well, I have to I have to have a calorie level or I have to have this or that or I have to stand on the scale and I have to know how to eat based on what that number says. We put it all on the back burner. It's mm-hmm. so it's it's hard at first, but to everything that you have said, we acknowledge our limitations on the weight category, but there's so much more for us. And that's the fun work is really kind of getting to help folks take a look at life without a number on the scale. Yeah. Or, or a medication, like the increase in metformin. And sometimes, I mean, people are on metformin even if their weight is lower. Mm-hmm. And so there's all those weights. It's, it can be grieving that the, the loss of not having to take medication to have mm-hmm. the healthiest. Yeah. Outcome. And, you know, I, I really, for me, the pandemic really illustrated kind of, kind of for me took the veil off of all the ways that we talk about, control of what we what we think of as controllable health behaviors. Mm. So clients 
beat themselves up over the way that they eat, over the way that they move their bodies. And they actually do that. They do that very centered around weight, of course, but they also do it even independently of weight, right? That even when a client has reached a real state of acceptance with their body, there's still this feeling of, you know, well, I have this obligation to exercise this amount or to eat in this perfect way and all of this. And yet, for me, the sort of national discourse around the pandemic really shifted that. COVID-19 is the third leading cause of death at this point in the United States. You know, you're talking, what are we up to now? Millions of deaths at this point, or at least a million. And I think the CDC estimates something like 300,000 deaths from COVID-19 every year now, when a disease that didn't exist, you know, just a few years ago. And so it's right under, you know, heart disease and cancer, These these and we we have talked in this culture about the idea that you know those controllable health factors impact heart disease and cancer and we should be working on exercise and diet and weight loss and everything else in service to reducing our risk for number 1 and number 2 and yet i looked around the culture and here was a case where there was a modifiable risk factor that absolutely reduces COVID-19, wearing a mask and getting your vaccines. And you can absolutely reduce these deaths and, and dramatically, and not only for yourself. I mean, if you worry about exercise, the only person that helps is you. But with a mask, I'm, I'm protecting myself and I'm protecting even more everyone around me. And yet people were absolutely not willing to do it and are still not willing to do it. And even our public health authorities have not said, oh, everyone has to be in a mask all the time. And for me, that was the moment that I really realized this has nothing to do with health. This has nothing to do with heart disease and cancer. This is all really just about two things. It's about fat hatred and about making people feel guilty and ashamed for the bodies that they have. And the other thing it's about is healthism. This idea, instead of talking about the social determinants of health, instead of talking about how we all are responsible collectively as a society for one another's health and well-being, we're going to put the individual blame on sick people for their illnesses and their disabilities. And we're going to say it's something you did and it's your fault. And if only you had eaten better or exercised better, that somehow you wouldn't be sick. That was never true. None of that was ever true. And for me, I feel like I hope clinicians really look at the way we responded to the pandemic and realize, well, if we don't care about stopping the spread of COVID-19 and preventing deaths, you know, doing the, the tiny things that are much less difficult and painful compared to a weight loss effort or even compared to an exercise regime, we're not even willing to do that. Then we need to let go of this healthist kind of focus on exercise and eating to the exclusion of all the other things like access to healthcare and health disparities and mm-hmm. all these other things that actually make a much bigger difference in people's long-term health and health and wellness. Might seem like a bit of a digression, but I feel like it's really gets at the center of what we're doing. I don't think it's a digression at all. And I've just even this weekend had a friend talk, I mean, kind of apply healthism to me. You know, if we just stay active and we just do this and that, and that's minimizing some of the medical things that I've had happen in my world this year. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's not digressing, that that's Mm -hmm. such an important language that we need to be able to use to help people Mm -hmm. understand that you can do everything right. Right. Not saying that I have, I'm doing this in quotes because this is, yeah. but, and you can still have health problems. <laughs> so. Right. In fact, 
For sure you will, right? For sure you will. We're human, right? We're human beings. I mean, one of the things I think is so fascinating is the the terror around death, you know, that really gets at a lot of this. It's like, it actually doesn't matter if you eat perfectly, whatever that might mean. Whatever that means. You don't know, you know, but if in the eyes of God, you ate whatever was the ideal diet and you had the ideal way of moving your body and, and the rest of you was ideal too, your meditation was perfect, everything was great you're still going to get old and you're still going to get sick and you're still going to die, you know, no matter what that's going to happen. And, and part of kind of the ageism or healthism or ableism in our culture is a lack of respect for our elders, a lack of respect for the wisdom of folks who are kind of further along down that chain than young people. And that's, I think, a really systemic shift that I hope the folks who are invested in fat, uh, fat acceptance are kind of moving towards that we need to de-link the idea that your body is a, a result of your behaviors. You have a body, it's a great joy. It is the only way you get to experience the world. And, and you know, the food is an amazing, delicious pleasure that we get to have in bodies. Movement is an amazing, delicious pleasure that we get to have in bodies, but they're not punishments. They're not things you have to do. They're not a rent you have to pay to deserve to be human. I love that example you gave of nobody really wants to lose weight. You know, what if the number stayed the same, but you felt X, Y, and Z? I'm definitely, definitely going to use that. I have a few clients on mind. If though, so to kind of wrap things up here, and usually the way I phrase this is if you were to take yourself back to entering the field of eating disorders, but your field is really much more vast than that. So if you were to take yourself back, what do you wish you would have known then that you do know now? Oh, I wish I had had earlier and better education in terms of racism, in terms of white supremacy, in terms of ageism, there's nothing like becoming a middle-aged person to give you an education and a little flavor of how ageism plays out in the United States and in the world. So I wish I could have had that kind of deeper awareness. I'm a white clinician. That is a big limitation, the ways that I have been taught to be racist and to engage in white supremacy. And that's been a lot of unlearning over the course of my career. And I definitely wish I could have unlearned that earlier. I think white clinicians have a lot of work to do in terms of the harm we uh, potentially are bringing to our clients of color. And how do you avoid that? So that's the kind of the main thing that I wish I'd known earlier. But yeah, I, I think it's really a privilege to do this work. And I'm really hopeful that as a culture, we can start to move towards a place that's really loving and accepting of everybody's body, right? I'll tell you what, we're just planting the seed with this podcast episode with all of these things. I've been doing a ton of learning and unlearning through some, we have a weight inclusive toolkit that all dietetic students will be required to do in their undergrad programs. And I'm in this committee that has taught me so much and I still have a lot more to learn. And so some of the some of the things that have helped me is the book Cast and White Fragility. Both of those books have helped me understand when you talk, Dr. Berman, about racism and colonialism and all of those pieces. That's something that I want to learn for myself, but I also think has so much emphasis in in your book, what you've talked about. We're going to have to have you back. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. 
Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at bethharrell.com professionals.